Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exorcise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do lists one week at a time. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me are my co-hosts, Andy. Hello. And Sam. Excelsior. This week, Andy bends light and the conversation to his will. Sam is still waiting for a Bruce Campbell cameo on this podcast, and I visit a pocket universe utopia. This was almost an accidental Marvel-themed week, except Andy had to ruin it. Mm-hmm. This is, I think ruining is an accidental theme in this episode, too, because Sony ruined Spider-Man 3. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about Spider-Man 3. First of all, I'm shocked. Shocked, Shocked, Sam, you say. That you have never seen Spider-Man 3. Yeah. Why, why is that? Well, this falls under the category of life getting in the way of pop culture. And so I, I will just very, very quickly say that if you're going to call the cops on somebody, make sure you're calling them on the right person. I never finished this movie. I've seen, I had seen somewhere between 50% and two-thirds of this However, my evening ended with three different police officers from two different jurisdictions at my door for, you know, totally incorrect reasons. Noise complaint, right? Yeah. 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 The, the, the actual story there is, is a mom bought her kid a drum set in an apartment building. That's that's and what ha- that's what it. happened yeah. and and uh, yeah. So, so I, I we assume... never finished that movie. I, was... I, I never went back to it. I remember it being bad. Yeah, but I don't know how much of the bad I'd actually seen. You were too traumatized. I I was so like you know that's that's the thing that happens right. You know sometimes we mean to watch something. You know we have tickets for a movie or a show. You know, something like that. And, you know, like you have like a car accident or some a friend has a crisis, you know, like or you get sick, you know, right. These things happen all the time. And sometimes we get back to the thing that we intended to experience and other times we just don't. I completely understand this because this is why I never went back and finished The Crown. I watched the first five episodes of The Crown the night before my beloved dog passed away and while I was like sitting up with him while he was sick. So for me, I could never go back to it because I just had too much like emotional baggage attached to it, even though The Crown is a perfectly good show. Which I finally finished this week. You did finally finish All it. All four seasons. Yeah, that was one that you watched pretty much without me. Yeah, it was It was really odd that the aliens chose Elizabeth to make first contact with. I guess that's like a Doctor Who thing. Like, maybe they saw that. That's the only reason I can think about. But I mean, like, I did not know that prior to watching like- this season of The Crown. I didn't know... I didn't know. And, and you know, it, I'm just really happy that Diana was there to, like, broker communication because she's the only normal one there. <laughs> I feel like you're <laughs> describing Galaxy Quest, but if it was Doctor Who. I, yeah. Yeah. All right, yeah. so back to Spider-Man. <laughs> we have had three Spider-Men in the last 15 years and have had another Spider-Man 3 just in this last year. Remind us who the first of the three Spider-Men is and what the first Spider-Man 3 was about. Kids, long before Tom Holland and even before Andrew Garfield, there was a guy by the name of Tobey Maguire. And he was the first Spider-Man of the new millennium. We've had like 17 at this point across all media, but he was the first, you know, famously this movie was made. The first Spider-Man movie was largely, well, I actually don't know how much of it was done, but done prior to 9-11. Because, of course, famously, the the trailer with the World Trade Center in it was scrapped. So this, you know, so Tobey Maguire is truly new millennium 
New Century. I'm going to say Topher Grace ad accidentally at least once. You know that, right? I, Even though I, I he's do in this know movie. that, yeah. Right. I think it's hilarious that you get them confused because they are in this movie together. Yeah. So it came out in 2007. It was the third Sam Raimi directed in this trilogy. I don't know that Sam Raimi knows how film sequels work. So like <laughs> when they made Evil Dead 2... I guess because there was a two in the title, he thought you made the same movie twice, which is what he did. And I imagine somebody, probably Bruce Campbell, told him that's not how movies work. So when he made Spider-Man 3, he's like, okay, I know we don't make the movie three times. I understand that. But what does that mean we have to have three villains? And once again, Bruce Campbell told him probably no. Because it's not actually his fault. This movie is too bloated. And that's why it's not a good movie. We know this. But apparently this is not Sam Raimi's fault. Sam Raimi only wanted Harry Osborn and Sandman in this movie. Ari Ovid is responsible for mm -hmm. Venom. And Sony is responsible for Gwen mm -hmm. Stacy. Mm -hmm. As I understand it. So, I mean, really... I think, and I'll say a little bit more about this later, but I think this movie is an exercise in making the best out of a bad situation. Yes, yes. I have recently rewatched Spider-Man 3, and I have to say I am surprised by how how actually kind of good a lot of the, the Spider-Man is. You have to embrace the comic bookiness, though. Like, you have to really just be in that mindset, and it works. For the most part, it works. Parts of it work. Can I, I can think. I ask you real fast, Andy? Mm -hmm. Okay, so the scene with Peter Parker strolling down the street. Mm -hmm. If they had done that JGL style from 500 Days with like a bird on his shoulder, would that have been better? Would that be embracing the comic book? Uh, yeah, you know what? Actually, it 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 would. Look, the the only like real problem that I have with Spider Man Three is the casting of Toad for Grace's Venom. Eddie. All right, hold on. Let me back up here because I because I I think we're about ready to all go ham on a specific joke here. So this movie, if you haven't seen it yet, here are the basic plot lines. Flint Marco is a man trying to get enough money for treatment for his sick daughter. Physics happen to him and turn him into the Sandman. He also, without spoiling it, has a connection to the man who murdered Uncle Ben. Da, da, da. We have Harry Osborn, who is haunted by his dad or his dad's alter ego, the same one who haunted him and who haunted Norman in the first movie. And he is out for revenge, except very, very quickly at the beginning of this movie, he ends up with amnesia because this is a soap opera movie, I guess. We also have. Venom, a symbiote oh my from God. another planet who infects Peter. And, of course, you know where this is going because if you know anything about Venom, you know that Eddie Brock is in this movie. Eddie Brock is a rival photographer. He is unscrupulous. He will get what he wants. And what he wants is to be a photographer and to date Gwen Stacy, both of which he does in this movie. It's kind of implied that he perhaps stalks Gwen Stacy yes. in this movie. Okay. Also, I just want to say the other plot line, Peter is a jerk. The Venom movies have now completely gaslit me on how you're supposed to say the word sim symbiote. 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 Okay, wait. So you have now seen the Venom movies. Symbiote. Oh, yes, of course. She did not like it. She did what? not like it. I didn't like the second one. I, I liked, liked the it pretty first well. I, I thought they were both the same level of uh, of stupid fun. Yeah, they were both bad. I, they're not good. Let's not labor under that. I just that. didn't particularly enjoy the second one. I really enjoyed the first one. But yeah, they, the Venom movies have completely gaslit me on how to actually say that word. Symbiote. I don't like how Venom is portrayed in the third Spider-Man movie. One, because I think there's too much going on in that movie. Two, Venom isn't the ring of power like he's norman bates and so like to me the way he's portrayed in that movie is more like he draws out the bad sides of you and he isn't like a fully developed personality and to me that just doesn't make a lot of sense it's also really unclear we watched the editor's cut which i which i want sam to talk about here in a second 
And even from the editor's cut, it's not very clear when Venom infected Peter or if just his presence like makes Peter turn into a jerk because you don't actually see the scene with Venom like crawling up Peter until like halfway through the movie after he's already been a jerk to MJ a couple of times, which feels like changing the character of Peter Parker to me. Like the editing in this movie is terrible. I don't know when things are supposed to happen. I'm not completely clear on how certain events follow other events. That's my opinion on why this movie is bad besides the random amnesia for Harry, because I feel like Sam Raimi was like, whoa, we have too many storylines going on. We need to take one out for a while. He's going to have amnesia so he doesn't keep attacking Peter for the first part of the movie. That's how I feel about this movie. I just feel like all of these characters are acting in ways they would never act in the comic books. Right. The the characterization of Peter is a problem. I think that was the main takeaway we had from that. Andy, what did you okay, think? Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Have, have like either of you read the original Venom storyline where Peter becomes yes. a jerk? Yes, but it's after he's infected. Okay. Like, it's not before, which this movie implies that he starts becoming a jerk before. Like, Peter is acting in ways throughout this movie that is very inconsistent with the way that he has been characterized in the first two movies. Like he doesn't, he doesn't ask, you know, like there's something clearly wrong with MJ and Harry figures it out instantly. But like we get what over halfway through the movie before Peter finds out that MJ got cut from the show. Right. And Venom isn't, hasn't even like, been part of the picture yet yeah like it's not necessarily what they were trying to say it's just the way the movie's put together doesn't actually make sense okay since i haven't seen the editor's cut because i stick with just whatever the original is maybe it's different i don't know but you know what yeah no that that is that is what what venom does that the the symbiote draws out your anger and your emotions but he's also like a personality. Like it's not just like he tempts you by being like not, powerful and then like not at the beginning yeah. though. Like not in his original comic book thing, the pre nineties comic book stuff. Yeah, I just I don't know. Like there's just too much going on in this movie. This movie felt like a ten hour miniseries crammed into one movie, and I think that it really makes the plot and understanding how all these threads hook together or even like the events chronologically, it makes it very hard to follow. Sam Raimi is a trailblazer and we know this back from Evil Dead on up. The reason he's a trailblazer with Spider-Man 3 is here in 2022. We are plagued by 10-hour miniseries that should be two-hour movies. (laughs) Sam Raimi anticipated this and flipped it on its head by making a 10-hour miniseries a two-hour movie. Mm -hmm. Congratulations to you. Do you want to talk about the editor's cut? Do I want to talk about the editor's cut? Yeah, what does it change? Like, From what I understand. And so this is an exercise in if you have the time and opportunity to watch two different versions of a movie back-to-back, which I don't, that would be good. But I'm relying on kind of a, uh, an amalgamation of what several people have written. And so there is very little in the way of additions. The, uh, the major additions appear to be two. One, there is a scene involving Flint, his daughter, and a sandcastle that's very emotionally moving. There is when Harry and Peter get involved in their second fight, when Peter comes to the apartment, he is just chill at the beginning. Like he, that, 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 you know, Peter as a jerk is what prefaces that fight. Like he doesn't get goaded by Harry for a, for a bit. But the big change with the editor's cut is, moving scenes around to create a better flow. And so the biggest change with the editor's cut is what I would like to call Peter's descent into jerkitude. 
it takes much longer in the editor's cut. And and the issue, one of the issues with that is, is it makes for a smoother transition. Like you can watch it happen. There are actually a couple more scenes added of the suit, you know, like tempting Peter and breathing on its own. But the idea Which is here, very evil dead. Oh, yeah. Definitely. This is a big Necromicon energy uh, when he opens up the trunk and the suit's just sitting in there. This is supposed to make sense out of the fact that, that, that Peter is becoming a worse person. But unfortunately, as Tessa says, it associates that those worst qualities of Peter with just Peter, not Venom. And and it didn't make a lot of sense. To be, to be fair, Raimi also said, like, I didn't have any appreciation for Venom as a character anyway. Right. I think it's interesting the idea of saying, well, what if Peter really struggled with being important mm-hmm. suddenly, right. right? Like, what if he really struggled with that? The problem is, is that the way the way it's characterized, it just doesn't it doesn't e- really make sense for the character to me. And like you said, like maybe there was a good way of doing this. I just don't see it in this particular movie. I do like some of the other strands of this movie a lot. I wish the CGI was a little better. We we watched Spider Man one and two before we watch this and both of those have special effects that for the most part hold up. I mean, they're a little dated, but for the most part they hold up. This has a really bad green screen sequence at the very beginning, the first fight between Harry and, and Peter. And it's, it's so bad, like, like bad to the point where I'm just like, this couldn't have looked good at the time either. It did. Well, (laughs) it's also really interesting too. I think the two thousands, whenever you're watching movies from the 2000s that have a lot of computer-generated effects. So we talked about Parallel Mothers last week, right? And so I thought for certain some of those scenes were green-screened, and then I was defied, you know, shown that it very much wasn't by a character walking into the background and working with things. And so Citizen Kane among many things, is is known for its use of, Wells' use of deep focus, which is a technique when you are shooting on film of making everything in the scene in focus, the foreground and the background. It's difficult to do. It's even more difficult to do in color, which is one of the reasons he shot in black and white. And so, like, when you are, like, raised on films from the 80s and back and then into the 90s, the 2000s were a really weird time because you have you you start to have no idea is something by the end of the decade, is that practical or is that on a green screen? Because once we start shooting digitally, it's so much easier. And it's almost like, I wonder if people who haven't gone back and watched older films that don't rely on this technology if they if it bothers them if they notice but it really bothers me and so in a movie like this where it's bad green screen at least i know it's bad green screen i almost prefer that to not knowing the difference and there are practical effects in this film too like the suit breathing is clearly a practical effect so right and this is something that sam raimi is super good at right and we know that the sandman effects though like that was the big thing in in the time, like what they talked about at Comic-Con and stuff was like, they developed the technology to make the Sandman look this way. They developed all that. It's where most of the budget went. The Sandman stuff still looks really good. Right. Yeah. But you know, is that, and okay, I'm sorry. Film nerd question. Is the Sandman effect better than the cinematography trick that they invented in Evil Dead, where like your the camera is your point of view rushing into something, which is repeated in most of Raimi's movies. And then I'm I'm really blanking on who who actually did the 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 camera work, but he went to Raising Arizona with the Cohen brothers and repeated it in that. Which one is more impressive? This practical cinematography effect or the CGI Sandman work? At the end of the day, which one would you pick if you could only use one? It's a good question. I do have two questions for you before I ask for your recommendation. One, is it possible for Sam Raimi to make a movie 
without Bruce Campbell at least having a cameo in it because he's in all three of the Spider-Man Do you know what the plan for him was? No. The plan for Bruce Campbell was that he was going to be Mysterio. It was going to be Ah. revealed in like uh, the sixth movie that Mysterio had been there the whole time. And just rude to Peter every time he showed up. <laughs> I, I will say, if you want to see Venom done right, there's a short called Truth in Journalism that stars uh, Ryan Quentin from uh, True Blood. Uh, being f- yeah, that is really good. Okay. It's from the same people who did the Punisher Laundry Day. Yeah, just look it up. Truth in Journalism. It's part of the bootleg universe. It does a really good job of Venom. Is it possible for Sam Raimi to make a film without oh, no. Bruce Willis? No. Why Bru- would you? You mean Bruce Campbell? Because you said <laughs> Bruce my- Willis. Sorry. I, I, sorry, I just, just want to be sure because if I Bruce Willis Bruce was somewhere the in there, time. I want to know. No, I, I said Bruce Campbell the first time before right. you answered so the question. just cut to where yeah. I say right now, no. And why would you? My second question is, will Bruce Campbell be in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness? If he's not, what's the point? And then finally, what is your recommendation? What should people do with this movie? Well, so the thing is, right? So we're recording this, what, a day or two before we can actually finally watch this Omicron movie? Spider-Man, No Way Home? I thought you guys were going to go see Batman this weekend. We are. We are. But we're also finally looking forward to seeing Spider-Man, which will be available to people who weren't going to go to theaters in December. Uh, I mean, it made a billion dollars, so I guess, you know, just tells you how many, how much money would it have made? But we watched this movie as part of that. We watched the entire trilogy. And overall, we really enjoyed it. I have no desire to go back and watch the Garfield movies. At all. I've seen them. Jamie Foxx doing good work. Andrew Garfield, fine. I like Emma Stone. I'm not going to go back and watch those movies. Period. I don't need to. I enjoyed these. And I think that even though this is clearly the weakest one of the bunch, it was worth it. I'm happy that we watched them. So that's it. Recommend. The trilogy. Oh, uh, Andy, yes. what do you have against Topher Grace? You know what? Topher Grace, perfectly fine actor. The film editor of the prequel trilogy that we should have had, apparently. Here's one of the few times that I actually have a problem with casting based solely on physical ability. Venom, Eddie Brock, is is a man who can beat Spider-Man by himself sometimes. He, he is strong enough to just cut down trees with his arms. All right. Thomas Hayden Church should have played Eddie Brock. Yes, he makes an excellent Marco Flint. But he he is Topher Grace is too skinny. He should have been Carnage. He should have been Cassidy. He just absolutely no. 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 Oh my god, no. So this is this is the place to ask then. Now that they've taken a second crack at casting Venom, I I think I know what you're gonna say. But is this is is Venom our new Venom more yes. appropriate? Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. All right. Perfect. No further questions. And Venom says gay rights. He does. He does. And I did appreciate that part of of the the second Venom movie. Have you seen Andy? The uh, the new meme, the I support the Punisher's transgender girlfriend. No. You should it's look into that. One. It's a good meme. It's, it's a, a good very one. good meme. So this actually leads me right into segment two with mm-hmm. Andy, because Andy, obviously, obviously Spider-Man is a franchise that you follow religiously. You've told us bef- this before that you have been a fan of Spider-Man for a long time. Spider-Man movies tend to come out on or around your birthday. And Used so that's, to, yes. that's kind of a big thing for you. Used to before the pandemic ruined it. I have two questions okay. for you and then two questions for Sam. 
what other franchises do you follow religiously and what franchises did you used to follow religiously and then stop following? I, I have this number one, one piece, but absolutely just, just continue. Just one piece is my favorite franchise of all time. I will follow it till the day I die or until the day that it ends. Uh, who, you're probably going to die first at this point, right? <laughs> it is wrapping up. That that is all I can say about the the current story arc. It is wrapping up. There 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 is an end in sight. The other franchise that I follow religiously is a um a fantasy franchise uh written by Joe Abercrombie called The First Law World basically. I I it's it's good fantasy. And then The Gentleman Bastards by Scott Lynch. Those are pretty much the franchises that I am so invested in that I'll just keep going to the day I die. Now, franchises that I've stopped following, that I used to follow religiously, involves a lot of the CW shows. A lot of that. But more importantly, I think I think this is really, really, truly indicative. Doctor Who. Yes, both of those yes for me and Sam, but... Explain why. I don't know. Doctor Who just lost me at one point. I, I really, I really, I don't know why. Uh, sometime during the Capaldi str- stretch, yep. I just, it ne- it stopped becoming important to me. I stopped trying to follow it. I just didn't care. I, you know, I actually, I think I might go back and, and enjoy some. I want to watch this uh, new episode with John Barrowman. But yeah, I, I just... To put it in in a phrase from my favorite comedy show currently, I just can't be. (laughs) It's really sad when a franchise that you've been in love with for so long just starts to be bad. Because I think we both had that problem with the CWs. We did that whole podcast series with you back on Geek 101 Mm -hmm. about the, the road to Arrowverse, all of the shows leading up to Crisis on Infinite Earths. But after that, we just we didn't really have a taste for most of them anymore. We had fatigue, and most of the shows weren't that great anymore. Yeah, and Legends is the only is the only one that I want to watch. Yeah, absolutely. Sam, same two questions: What franchises do you follow religiously, and which franchises did you used to follow religiously and then stop following? Okay, can I say two things really, really quickly? One, Joel Cohen was an assistant editor on The Evil Dead. That's the connection. I forgot. I can't believe yeah, it. The Coens like went to high school with Rami. Right. Both Rami. So I, I the thing that got me is the Ramis and the Coens are brothers. They're two sets mm-hmm. of brothers and they know each other. They've collaborated on occasion, especially at the beginnings of their careers. Barry Sonnenfeld was the cinematographer for Raising Arizona though. Two so I was finally watching, what is it, The Flight Attendant, the uh, Kaylee Kuoko show that was on yeah. HBO Max at launch. The actor who plays Missy is a main character on that show. And I was like, I was like, I know that person. From Doctor Who. Yeah, Missy from, from Doctor, Doctor Who. Who. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, to go back to Doctor uh, Who. I was just saying, the other thing is also a lot of franchises have ended. Uh, I used to follow Game of Thrones. Well, no, Game of Thrones hasn't ended, Andy. The franchise of Game of Thrones has not ended. A series will, of Game of Thrones. It will end when ended. that man dies. Or when Brandon Sanderson takes over. Like 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 that that's part of the problem here, right? Is it a franchise or a series? One piece is just a series. That's all it is. It's so huge, it's almost its own franchise. Well, I think Game of Thrones though, is good right? to talk about. No, Game of Thrones is good to talk about as a franchise because it was a book series. Then it was a TV series, and now we've got the new show with Matt Smith. The doctor. We have the spin-off. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, that one I think you could definitely call a franchise. Star Wars. Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. We will watch anything that's Star Wars related. Yeah. Even though you've had some real low lows on Star Wars and some real high highs. I wish I could quit you. I forgot about Star Wars as a franchise. (laughs) No, no. Star Star Wars is actually another another, uh, franchise that I used to follow religiously. And then I still haven't seen The Mando season two. Yeah, and even then, though, I only followed it religiously as far as the movies went. I won't. I won't give up on it. The TV shows are much better than. I most believe of in the you. That's part of the thing. I want to. Like, 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 it is high on my list. High on my list. 
I, you know, the thing about it is, is like, I remember watching my VHS copy of The Empire recorded off of HBO, and it wasn't the Hoth scenes aren't pan and scan. They just took it and smushed it. Obi-Wan Kenobi is 17 feet tall. <laughs> and you can hardly see him because it's on Hoth and they haven't, like, this is before they remastered it. You can hardly see him. I mean, if the Rise of Skywalker wasn't going to make me stop, <laughs> I don't know. They're going to have, they, they'd have to really do something bad. What about Bond? Dun, 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 you know, dun, 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 I was dun, trying dun, to think dun, dun, dun. of uh, what franchise did I used to follow religiously and stopped? Star Wars is really the only one I follow religiously. I mean, I, I Bond and Marvel, I mean, those are things I'm going to keep watching. Bond has dared me to stop. Multiple times. Especially this time, though. We'll see. Yeah, and then, and then we have things like video games, right? I follow right. Zelda religiously. We just bought a Switch. I can't wait to start getting back on the Zelda train again. It's going to be so much fun, y'all. Oh my god. I'm I'm like actually like emotionally like happy for you. Like I'm coming for oh, that, you all. That's so awesome with Mario Kart. I'm coming for you all. Once I figure out how to play that game again, you're all dead. <laughs> I will destroy you with Toad. Okay, here's a good example of a franchise that I I don't follow religiously but nintendo in general i am a nintendo fanboy i will freaking talk your ears about off about nintendo uh their their the horrifying things that they have done to be anti-consumer but the amazing things they've done to be pro-consumer as well i am a nintendo nerd it, like just this morning the new generation of pokemon was announced i haven't played pokemon in years i haven't i haven't really played pokemon since Diamond and Pearl, the originals, not the remakes. That's right. It's been so long that they've done a remake for the Switch now. But I still follow it because it's important to me. So I ask these questions because I think it's interesting the way that certain franchises pretty much guarantee list generation. And then certain ones, it's weird when you think about the ones where you're like, I'm going to watch this or read it or play it forever. And then like you look back and you're like, man, like I have not done that. So, Tessa, what franchises do you follow religiously, and which ones did you used to follow religiously and stop? I have a guess here. I have a guess, okay? I think Tessa is super into, super, super into, and this, is, this has been a secret to everybody, including you, Sam. She has kept this secret from her wife. Including myself, I think. Yes, yes. <laughs> Tessa is super, super into the Dancing with the Stars universe. The DSU? Yes. The expanded universe? Are, are, you, are you guessing that of the two of us, Tessa is the one most likely to have seen Oz season of Dancing with the Stars? And weirdly, the, crosso one of the crossover has. with the Alton Browniverse. One of us has seen a season of Dancing with the Stars. It's not Tessa. It's not me. I feel like most of the franchises that I follow pretty religiously, again, like defining franchises a certain way, have been mentioned already. I really, I hadn't even thought when I wrote this question about the CW, but I'm really glad that you brought that up, Andy, because that was a big part of my TV watching for a long time. Like, I watched every single show when it would come out like every night right for during the season there would be a new episode of arrow flash supergirl right i remember being at a party with you at our friend tia's house with both of you and me and sarah saying like yeah well we really like this show it's really hard to explain to people but it's called legends of tomorrow and both of you just being like yes I haven't seen an episode of a CW show besides Legends of Tomorrow in probably like since we did the Road to Arrowverse. Like we immediately stopped watching a lot of them. I'm really glad you mentioned that Doctor Who is another one that I stopped uh, uh, probably around the same time you did, Andy. But I watch everything that Star Wars does, everything Marvel does. I mean, I feel like that's true for a lot of people. I watch most of what the DC adaptations. Yeah, like I want to get into Doom Patrol because I've heard nothing but good things about it. It is on my list. I want to. Yeah, so there's there's those like big ones. Bond, I hadn't actually watched, but now I'm like firmly in the Bond camp. What about Star Trek, Tessa? 
Oh, Star Trek. Star Trek is so fast. Star Trek is the love of my life. No, I. Hey, I'm right here. I love Star Trek. Can you compete with Picard? No. (laughs) He's old. I could take him. What about Janeway? No. You've seen Orange is the New Black. No. 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 I could take Bacula, though. (laughs) You know, I could take Kirk. All you have to do is duck a couple times. <laughs> Keep getting us off of talking about something that I think is near and dear to Tessa's heart, even more than the Dancing with the Stars universe. Tessa, what did you do this week and why is it important to you? What have you done? What have I done? So I've talked a lot about X-Men over the entirety of this podcast. I used to obsessively read X-Men comics. When I discovered them when I was 13, I went back and read like all of the Uncanny X-Men everything involving certain characters, spinoff-wise. And I still love it, but at some point I got, like, I'm I'm probably like a couple years behind at this point because I just got into other things and I, ha- I don't have time to follow all of these, like, different storylines. So I've just, like, picked and read, like, certain arcs or certain characters that I thought were really interesting. But I haven't, like, kept up with the series as a whole. I'd love to change that. I don't know when that's going to happen. But something happened a couple of weeks ago that allowed me to read a X-Men event that I hadn't read before. And that was, I was looking for something very specific to talk about in my dissertation. And somebody told me, hey, like this particular event actually falls right into what you're talking about. So I went back and I read the event X-Men Age of X-Man, which is a... X-Man, you say. X-Men Age of X-Man. What what is this event? This was a 2019 crossover event for X-Men Comics. They basically wanted to reboot the franchise, and so they had a bunch of different lines going at this point. They had X-Men Gold, X-Men Blue, and X-Men Red, which I haven't read most of. That's because I have behind. Wait, what is this, Pokemon? These are the lines that I've read, by Right, the you've way. read more of these Oddly, than I have. Weirdly. I stopped reading a pair... This, I believe, is right when I stopped reading. So they got a franchise-wide relaunch in 2018. They decided to relaunch the Uncanny X-Men, and they started with this arc called X-Men Disassembled, which culminated in the beginning of this event. So Uncanny X-Men 1 through 10 is the X-Men Disassembled arc, which basically involves the apparent death of a lot of the X-Men, which is why... It's called X-Men Disassembled. Like, basically, they get into a conflict with Nate Gray, who is an alternate universe version of Nathan Summers, so Cable. And he basically wants to make everybody on Earth mutants. The X-Men tell him, no, you can't do that. And he's like, fine, I'm going to create my own little pocket utopia, and I'm going to take these X-Men with me. Takes them and puts them in this pocket utopia What's really cool about it is the first and the last issues that start the event and end the event were written by Zach Thompson and Lonnie Nadler. So the first issue is Alpha and the last issue is Omega. There are several lines within the event. So there's the Marvelous X-Men, the Next Gen, the Amazing Nightcrawler, the Extremists, Prisoner X, and Apocalypse and the X-Tracks. Each one of those lines has five issues in it. So you read Alpha and then the five issues of the line that you want and then Omega. What's really cool about it is that you you can read these lines in any order that you want as long as you read Alpha first and Omega last. And you don't have to read all of them for it to make sense. So you could be like, I'm a huge Nightcrawler fan. I just want to read the ones with Nightcrawler in it and, you know, read those two lines and... So which ones did you read? I read all of them. I wrote... So how many is that in total? Hold on. Let me do the math on that. You shouldn't ask me math questions on the podcast. You know I'm bad at this. One, two, three, four, five, six. So that's 32 issues. I believe your math is correct here. Yeah. So that's a lot. One has not read all the things that have come before. How... How easy or difficult it is it to just jump into this title? This is not a good starting point for new X-Men <laughs> people. No, like you will not understand is, what's going is on. Is the mansion still in like Central Park? No. What? Okay. No. No? So this is not a good starting point if you're not familiar with these characters. This event relies on you understanding who these characters are 
and certain things from their past that they referred to. If you are an X-Men fan who has a lot of history with these characters and basically knows who these characters are like I am, but you didn't read X-Men Disassembled, you can actually read this event. But if you are a completely new reader, uh, it would be difficult. So for it doesn't read. rely on things like the Terrigen war no. with the Inhumans or anything like that. No, this it's, is like classic. It's not an entry point for somebody who doesn't know X-Men. Right. But if you for don't, you, it was fine. Right. You're if you're not familiar with like Bishop, for an example, who's a pretty prominent character in this, then you're going to have a really hard time so understanding you, so this. So again, you said you read all of the these lines that go through the the narrative. Which ones did you like? Let me tell you a little bit about these lines first, and then I'm going to tell you, because I want I want to pitch it, because again, what I like about it is the flexibility, this idea that you don't have to read all of them. You can pick like which ones are most interesting to you and kind of start there. And they're all happening at the same time. So the events all culminate in Omega, which is the last one. The basic premise of this is that Nate Gray, who, as Lazi has told me, is a weird character, and I have to agree, he comes to us from Age of Apocalypse, which is why this is called Age of X-Man. So Nate Gray goes by X-Man. That is his, like, moniker, as it were. He's very egotistical in that way. But he decides that this pocket utopian universe should be based on Professor X's dream of peace. But he interprets that dream by saying everyone should be a mutant. There should be no more humans. If everyone's a mutant, there won't be any, like, problems. That's a stretch, but okay. I feel like this was covered in a film. Right, exactly. None of the X-Men who are there remember the other universe. They only have memories of this utopian universe. So he is like messed with like their memories of what has happened, but they have like pretty much fulfilling lives. Like for the most part, like the X-Men still exist. They now live in what is called the Summers Institute instead of the X Institute, the Xavier Institute, but they've had to give up something for utopia because Nate Gray thinks that what has caused all of the problems for the X-Men is their pursuit of personal satisfaction and their really messed up personal relationships. So he has decided that in this utopia, you live for the community. And personal relationships, close friendships, love, children, that's all like out. You can't have them. So these are the different lines. You have the Marvelous X-Men, which is the main X-Men title. This one is mostly populated by Jean Grey, Storm, Magneto, X-23, Colossus, Nature Girl, and Nightcrawler sort of monitoring mutants, you know, preventing mutants who get out of control with natural disasters, recruiting people for the Summers Institute, etc. Next Gen follows students at the Summers Institute. So it's very much in line of like the new mutants or something like that. It's more of like a teenage perspective on this. The Amazing Nightcrawler is about how Kurt in this universe is a movie star because Nate Gray has decided that the problem with Kurt in the other universe is that people hated him because of his appearance. So his contribution to the community would be like some actually being admired for his appearance. You also have the extremists, because if you're going to forbid things like personal relationships, turns out you need a police for this type of utopia. So the extremists is Psylocke, Iceman, Northstar, Blob, Gross, Jubilee, and Moneda. Prisoner X is what happens if you don't fit into the utopia because not all people can fit into this idea. They're either too dangerous or they their powers don't work or they're too messed up. Or this is what dooms every place-based utopia from ever happening exactly. ever as a concept. Exactly. So Bishop, Beast, Polaris, and Gabby are all, and Danielle Moonstar, she's a big person in this as well. So they're all like imprisoned for re-education in the community, but they're not going to be let out, right? Like that's not how this actually works. It, we actually get the the main character. This one was my favorite. And uh, Bishop is the the main point of view from this. And he gets thrown in there because he's having a sexual relationship with Jean Grey. They just erase Jean Grey's memory and let her be an X-Man. But Bishop, who is black, gets thrown in prison. So that should also tell you something about Nate Gray and his problems with running this universe. And then also in a hilarious twist, the final line of this is Apocalypse and the Extracts. In this universe, we have Apocalypse and he is a love guru because every utopia needs a villain. So we get Apocalypse as like the head of a love cult, like a 60s, like he's telling everybody how to have sex. Apocalypse is Charles Manson. Got it. Yeah, pretty much. Exactly. So you'll appreciate this. I should have mentioned this as I was going through them, but the Alpha and Omega were written by Lonnie Nadler, Zach Thompson. So was Age of X-Men, The Marvelous X-Men. 
Next Gen was written by Ed Brisson and Marcus Toe. The Amazing Nightcrawler by Sean and McGuire, who I know is one of your favorites, Sam and Juan Frigeri. Prisoner X by Vita Ayala and German Peralta. And Apocalypse in the X-Traps by Tim Seeley and Salva Espen. It is so good, but my favorites are Prisoner X, which is what I mainly wrote about in my dissertation. Again, if you don't know who some of these characters are, it's going to be really, really hard for you to follow some of these things. But I thought that that was so well written by the two of them. And it just had a lot to do with what happens if you win? Like, what's the cost of Utopia? And the cost is usually the people who can't do what you want them to do, right? It's also interesting to me that, one, the Uncanny X-Men storyline keeps going while this crossover is happening because there are those who are left behind who are trying to figure out what happened to the ones who entered the pocket universe. So you have like Wolverine, for example, and Cyclops trying to rescue Jean Grey from this universe. So you also get those who are left behind. The other thing I find interesting is that These writers do a very good job of explaining why this utopia is bad from the perspective of the people who are sacrificed for this utopia through the Prisoner X storyline and and some of the other storylines as well. Like, for an example, there's a hugely great relationship between Laura and Gabby, who are, are basically sisters in the main comics, and they don't even remember each other in this particular storyline. So there's a lot of conflict that comes from that. Danny Moonstar especially talks about being sacrificed for the happiness of others and how problematic that is. But there are also characters who are legitimately doing better in this universe than they are on Earth. Nightcrawler, for an example, is getting a lot of praise and glory and happiness and personal satisfaction from his role in the Age of X-Men universe than he would be on the main planet Earth. Nature Girl especially doesn't want to go back. She pleads with, you know, them to let her stay in this universe. Magneto also, uh, you know, sees this universe as a place where he could actually exist. So, you know, there there's a great way in which this explains the problems with the utopia, but then also explains how it would work well for certain individuals. So I am, as you know, a casual fan of the X-Men. Yes. I have read some comics. I have watched all the films, as you know. Let's pretend I haven't read everything immediately coming up to this, which I have. But for a casual fan like myself, would you recommend any of this series? And if so, what? Well, I would specifically recommend it to you, Sam, because I know you like X-Men and I know you like Utopia. So I actually think you would find this all very interesting. But I would I would recommend this. I think this was a really good event. Again, it's very strange because Nate Gray is a strange character and the concept in and of itself is strange. Like the fact that he basically was just like, all right, well, if you won't let me do it here, I'm going to do it somewhere else. Bye. But I think that as long as you're familiar with these characters, you will find a lot of these ideas interesting. Again, I like the flexibility of it. I like that if you're just not feeling one line, you can read a different line or whatever like that, or you could read the whole thing like I did. It's an interesting premise. Is it as good as a crossover event like, say, Age of Apocalypse or like one of the classic ones? Probably not. But I really enjoyed it, and I wrote about it a lot in my dissertation. So I recommend that if any of these ideas seem interesting and you are at least a casual X-Men fan, you will probably enjoy this particular event. This actually made me want to go back, though, and like actually catch up, though. So yay me. Pop culture productivity. Tessa, quick question. Yes. Yeah. Are you excited about X-Men 97? The, yeah, the television show? Yeah, I actually got Sam to agree to watch the animated series with me Ouch. in preparation. Oh, okay. In preparation, because it's supposed to be like a season six, basically. Right, right. Like, they're going to oh, start oh. where it left off. Well, ha- have have fun. That is some uh, rough animation. I love it. it is I love it so much. rough animation with off-model characters. Anyway. We, we watched the first couple of seasons of The Simpsons. Yeah. It'll be okay. This is rougher. 
I'm not All sure right. I agree with no, that. No, I don't know that that's... <laughs> anyway, uh, I think that actually we did find our inadvertent theme, despite what we said earlier, because I believe the Lightbringer is a Nintendo Switch game. Is that correct, Andy? Uh, incorrect. Incorrect. Very Wrong. incorrect. Um, All right. Tell me what the Lightbringer is. The Lightbringer is a fantasy novel series by Brent Weeks, which includes the books The Black Prism, The Blinding Knife, The Broken Eye, The Blood Mirror, and The Burning White. So, no, it is a, it is a fantasy novel series. All right. What is it about? Essentially, the, the Lightbringer is uh, set in a world where the magic is light-based and light-spectrum-based. So the description, and I'm a sucker for any good mag- magic system, the description is pretty much that you know our bodies convert matter into energy, and magic is the opposite of that. It converts energy into matter. Uh, it is a world where people who can use magic can absorb usually one color on the spectrum of lights and turn it into a a solid material that can do different things. And it is essentially just about the politicking in this world and, uh, you know, a bit of prophecies and foretelling and uh, a lot of uh, religion that's kind of messed up and uh, kind of uh, misinterpreted by mere humans. So it is uh, it is just a... A fun fantasy. If you if you if you enjoyed Game of Thrones, think that, but with less gratuitous blood and sex. So not a dark fantasy like Game of no, Thrones. No, no. Th- this is this is more like a, a Mistborn situation. Although Mistborn can be pretty dark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, and this can be dark too. Just not like gratuitous. Right, right, right. And this is gotcha. this is a series that I had started reading. Back in uh, 2012 when the first book came out. All right. So have you finished it? Yes. Then? Yes. I have finished the, the final book in the series. It is, the, the series has ended and ended in 2019, and I have now finished it. Is this a series that you started and then stopped? Is that why this is a monkey for yes, you? Yes. Yes. Uh, so I... Maybe that was our inadvertent theme. Sam... Started and then stopped Spider-Man 3 because of traumatic life events. I have been behind on X-Men, and you started and stopped this series. Yes, I started and stopped the series because I finished... There we go. You did I it, found Tessa. It. Congratulations. Look at that. I finished book two the week it came out, and then I didn't pick it up when book three or book four or book five came out. So I redid the entire thing uh, via audiobook. So thank you, Audible, for allowing me to do that. Why did you stop in the first place? It's this magic thing where you finish a book and there's not more book and you wait and you keep checking uh, and you keep updating yourself and finding out when when the next book comes out and then it comes out and you don't pick it up. Yeah. And then time passes. Been there. And then more time passes and then you realize oh i i really want to know the ending to this so so that is why gotcha so did you start at the beginning again yes yes i i went ahead went full force into the beginning the first book is is very good there's a lot of mysteries and you know things that you don't know happening happening it, it is very clearly planned out and very well planned out did you pick up on anything in this read-through that you didn't the first time around? Because that often happens to me when I restart things. A lot of this is about imperialism, and that was like a metaphor that I just wasn't ready to to pick up on at all. You, you know, um, one of the countries that this book takes place in is a country where, because of its um, place in a war... It, the side that it chose, the country is being governor, governed by seven other countries and they just take turns governing it. So so the people there feel no responsibility over their futures. No, uh, There's no hope. They just, you know, are subservient to one of seven kingdoms. Any 
any on any given year. They take turns being colonizers. Yes, yes. They they take turns being colonizers and because of how cruelly the different colonizers treat them, resentment grows and inevitably a force rises up. And yeah, it is it is essentially it is it is it is colonizer stuff and it is fascinating to read and to acknowledge uh the you know the modern day politics that are there. I I really wish I could d- describe this book series better, but it's one of those things where uh you have to go in and just describe every little boring thing to uh describe the characters and how much fun. I will say as a former fat kid, it is great to have a fat kid who is uh the protagonist who doesn't just magically become unfat and doesn't magically, you know, recover from it when he f- starts to figure out that he might be a uh, a mythicized figure. It is it is great to have realistic things like that happen. I was going to ask you, is is this more of an ensemble cast or is it more of a traditional fantasy hero's journey? It becomes more of an ensemble cast. It is balanced between two characters at the start and then it goes to about four characters at the end. So I, I would say, really, if you if you are into Brandon Sanderson, you you will like this. You will like how well done it's crafted. You will like how well thought out the world is. And you will like the cool little things that sci- that are sciency, right? You know, they they use the light spectrum, and people start fighting and stuff, and then you find out that oh, there there's a group of uh, of magicians who can use a light spectrum that's not visible. Yeah, that really reminds me of Mistborn a lot. Like Brandon Sanderson writes what I like to call hard fantasy, and that's kind of what this sounds like. Yeah, it's it's very very good. I I. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Please give it a shot. It's uh, to start with the first book, The Black Prism. It's it's a lot of fun and a lot of mystery. How many books are there? You might have said I just five. Five. Okay. All right. Five. And awesome. it, and it's done. It is it is done. This is not a um a Game of Thrones situation where you'll be waiting, 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 waiting. <laughs> where where the actual refusal of the author to finish it is actually causing people to forget that it exists. Oh, it's a very fun little power fantasy. That that there 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 is there is that part. Um All right, Sam. What are we up to for the next 2 weeks? Oh, okay, you're going to throw to me. All right. So, uh exciting stuff. A couple of weeks from now, it's going to be Oscar time. Which Ooh. means, I mean, I guess depending on your point of view, it's been Oscar time for a while now it's, since it's the, the white second whale. the nominations were announced. So the white whale for us uh, that we have been chasing is to watch all the Oscar nominees. And we're going to come really, really close this year. And to celebrate, we're going to take the next two weeks to do another limited series. We are going to be joined by friends of the pod, Megan and Jack. And we're going to run through over the course of the next two weeks all of the long-form feature Oscar nominations. It's going to be a good time, lots of movies, good stuff. Avid fans of the Oscars and movie making in general. I think Jack has seen probably more of these movies than I ever have. <laughs> this time features features a film based on a story by future Nobel Prize winner, Haruhi Murakami. You keep dreaming that dream, Sam. You keep you know, dreaming that Bob dream. Bob Dylan can win, and he's not even a literature writer. I just gotta feel like it's coming at some point. <laughs> All right, where can people find you, Andy? You can find me online on Twitter at Andy Noted, and also you can find me on not the next two episodes because it is Oscar time, and I don't care. When I asked. Where can people find you? What I meant was for you to give your home address to the hundreds and hundreds of listeners that we have so they can come Thousands visit you directly. <laughs> P.O. Box 342, Stillwater, Oklahoma, 74075. There you go. Send your questions about the Oscars. Yeah, exactly. 
pump up the volume. I was going to say, is this a pump up the volume where we send all our stuff to the P.O. box? Yep, exactly. Anyway, Sam, where can people find you online (laughs) and in their headphones? You can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris nine. You can find me on Twitter at Swayla Tessa. Swayla is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Ogg's Book Club, where Nigel and I are going through all 41 of Terry Pratchett's Discworld series. I believe that when this one is released, we will have just released Small Gods the week before, which is episode 12. You can find that on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. Send us your thoughts about the monkeys we talked about today. Is there anything that you have started and then stopped and then never gotten back to again or are intending on getting back to? What pop culture you've crossed off your list lately, what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes, or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Monkey Backlog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back. Yay! We did it.